So yeah, let's do this. So, okay. um, yeah, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am here with Raphael Pantucci, uh, co-author of the book Sinostan, which I have been slowly making my way through uh, and has been, yeah, enlightening me about the geopolitics and uh, problems in Central Asia. So it's not something I'd really considered in terms of like China's expansion of their global influence. So it was re really like a curveball when it got thrown at me. Like what, when did you start thinking about this region as, as somewhere that was significant for the world? So, I mean, it's a part of what I've been fascinated by for a very long time. I did, um, you know, I did a, a undergraduate a degree in literature and a postgraduate degree in international relations and security studies. And I was really interested in, in doing that and I, in interested in this part of the world, in Central Asia in particular. I've always been interested in, you know, literature about this part of the world, you know, Peter Hopkirk, uh, those kinds of writers writing about these sort of adventurers and the old Silk Roads. Um, and so it was always a fascinating part of the world. And, you know, when eventually I, when I moved to China in 2009 to live in Shanghai for a few years, um, I found a kind of perfect opportunity to really, uh, I managed to get a couple of big projects going that managed to give me the resources, frankly, to travel around the region with uh, my very good friend, Alexandros Peterson, um, with whom I sort of have co-authored uh, this book. So you went to, why did you choose to move to, to Shanghai, actually? Well, you know, as with any move, it tends to be a mix of the professional and the personal. Uh, my significant other at the time had gotten offered a job there, uh, so she moved. Um, I uh, found a funding program that took me there as well. Um, it was, you know, a great opportunity. You know, I mean, this was 2009. Um, I'd been living, you know, before that I'd worked at strategic studies think tanks in Washington and in London. Um, and, you know, it was quite interesting to hear what was happening in China. I was doing a lot of work on terrorism at the time. And I thought understanding terrorism in China would be a really interesting thing to do. And so I kind of managed to stick everything together and managed to get myself a, a grant to go out to China. And then that grant I managed to turn into more things. And it sort of led to four years of, of living in Shanghai. Um, at a moment when, you know, I think there was some very interesting things happening and lots of really interesting things happening in Xinjiang, uh, the western part of China, which is next to Central Asia, which in many ways was one of the kind of one of the things which really drew me uh, to the region uh, in the first place. Did you had, you had you been in China before you moved there? Um, I think I'd visited uh, once or twice on sort of brief stops through Hong Kong and Beijing uh, from recollection. I can't even, I'm trying to remember now if I'd been to Shanghai before I moved there. I'm not sure I had actually. Um, but, you know, living in uh, Hong Kong and certainly Beijing uh, uh, was interesting. But I mean, Shanghai is a very, very easy city to live in. I hear nowadays it's much more complicated with the lockdowns that they're enduring and um, what's happening with COVID in, in China and in, in the sort of political environment in China in general has, I think, made things more complicated. But certainly at the time, Shanghai was a very uh, easy and welcoming place to sort of move to. And it was, you know, there's lots of foreigners there and there's a sort of culture of seeing Shanghai as a kind of a gateway for China to the world. So it's always been very open. So it was a very easy move to make, to be honest, and a really interesting time, I think, to be in China, because it was when you were kind of at that moment of things were opening up and you were just on the cusp of this kind of takeoff. And it was before Xi Jinping had come into power. So you had a kind of different uh, political atmosphere as well. Um, so it was a really interesting and fun time to be there. Hmm. Is there a lot of terrorism in China? You said you were, you were over there doing a uh, thing studying terrorism in China. Yeah, is that, is that widespread? 
Well, it's not really, to be honest with you. I mean, terrorism in China is a, is a marginal thing, really, but it, it, it does exist, and one can't say it doesn't completely exist. I mean, in some ways, you know, you, you have to first think, well, how do we look at terrorism? What does terrorism mean? And, you know, I'm not going to get too bogged down in that question because as an academic, I could bore you to tears with long definitions and descriptions. And so forth. But and to be simple. Northern Ireland, I could give you a lot of very emotional. There, well, there we go. Exactly right. <laughs> so I think you got, a very, uh, you got a very strong sense of it already. There's no need to, to, to bang on about the definition one. But, but if I look at it from the Chinese government perspective, they would say there's a lots of different things that they would put under the branding of terrorism, which is basically anything that you define as sort of politically motivated violence. If we instead look at it from the Western lens, right, which would be let's look at what we call international terrorism, jihadist terrorism, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, that kind of stuff. Well, there is a group in, in that has links to China, uh, which calls itself the Turkestan Islamic Party, that the Chinese government refers to the East Turkestan Islamic movement. But broadly speaking, it's Uyghurs, Uyghur dissidents. Um, Uyghurs are a minority community in China that I'm sure people have heard of, uh, that gets a lot of attention now because of, frankly, the crackdown that's going on against them uh, by the Chinese government. There's roughly 10 million or so Uyghurs. Uh, they mostly live out in Xinjiang in Western China, which is the region that's next to Central Asia. And historically, they have had kind of, you know, uh, there have been instances where they tried to break away from China um, and they've created sort of small separatist statelet statelets. In more recent years, um, they'd align themselves, frankly, with some of the militant groups that were gathering in Afghanistan. And in pre-9-11 Afghanistan, um, there were training camps where Uyghurs and others were fighting and training alongside the Taliban and alongside Al-Qaeda. Um, and some of these individuals uh, were involved in violence uh, against Chinese uh, interests and nationals in uh, Central Asia in particular, but also in, in China. Now, it becomes very difficult to pinpoint exactly which incidents are terrorist versus which incidents are, frankly, unhappy Uyghurs just rebelling against the state or being sort of unhappy at their lot in, in modern China, um, because the information around incidents is very sort of sparse. But there is a group out there uh, that, as I say, calls itself the Turkestan Islamic Party that does have Uyghurs fighting alongside it, that at the moment has quite a strong footprint in Syria, has a more limited footprint in Afghanistan, and does talk about trying to sort of attack China uh, as part of its sort of global jihad. So that group has always existed. Now, <clears throat> in 2009, uh, around the time I'd actually moved to China, uh, there was some large-scale rioting out in Xinjiang, in Urumqi, the capital, in July of that year. Um, and this, you know, was a kind of a, a protest um, that was locals who are protesting, Uyghurs who are unhappy, who are, frankly have always been a bit unhappy uh, living in China because they feel like their, their rights aren't observed and they're seen as a minority community that's kind of oppressed. Um, but there were Uyghurs apparently working on the other side of China in Guangdong who had, you know, been uh, attacked um, and I think even murdered in some cases. And this was linked to some incident that had been reporting that had been reported happening. So a protest happened in Urumqi. That protest escalated to a riot that riot led to somewhere in the region 200 people dying. Um, and this incident of mass violence uh, was a really big deal. You know, it was a really big deal around the world at the time. It was a really big deal in China. Um, because until then, basically, people had sort of ignored what was happening in Xinjiang. Uh, but this really brought it to international attention. And unfortunately, what happened after this was you started to see more and more instances of violence uh, around the region. And some of these violent incidents were quite clearly what I think we would all safely call terrorism. You know, groups of guys driving a Jeep through a crowd in a market, throwing bombs out of it, you know, stabbing at people, uh, attempted suicide bombers. 
Um, but some of it was, you know, small villages where, frankly, the police were cracking down. The locals got very unhappy, went and attacked the local police station, and it became a kind of mini insurgency. But all of this kind of violence really started to escalate. And from a Chinese perspective, all of this was terrorism, you know, whereas in reality, some of it, yes, you could make a sort of case. And in some cases, some of the militant groups have released videos where they claim specific instances and said, oh, that was us, or that was a guy linked to us. But in other instances, it really was hard to discern, you know, whether it was just an act of sort of public unhappiness, really, that escalated because of the sort of tension in the situation. So that is kind of the terrorism story in China. And unfortunately, the sad codicil to all of this, and, you know, is that, um, you know, the Chinese government reaction to this has been twofold. And part of this is, was the foundation, in some ways, of the research of the book, is that, you know, from a Chinese government perspective, how do you deal with this problem? And they've kind of approached it on a two-track way. And track one is a heavy security crackdown, right? And that's a heavy security crackdown that we can all imagine, very heavy policing presence, lots of armed cops. You know, I've been visiting Xinjiang since about 2009 or so. And I visited basically every year from then until about 2017, I think. And what was striking was each time I went, the security was tighter, you know, much more visible, much more visible, armed guys everywhere. You know, security at the airport, the layers would start earlier and earlier and earlier on your journey. It was a really sort of tight. And so there was the heavy security crackdown. And a part of that is also what we see being reported a lot now in these re-education camps and some of these other stories of kind of, you know, mass incarceration that we're seeing out there. Uh, you know, from a Chinese perspective, this is all counter-terrorism policy. They're trying to deal with people who they see as, you know, being part of a group that is unhappy at the state, that is separatist tendencies and terrorist tendencies, and they need to clamp down on it. But the other side to that is, you know, in the longer term, the Chinese government recognizes that, you know, if you're going to deal with the problems that underpin this, which is basically an unhappy community, you're going to have to make them happy. And to make them happy, you basically need to improve their economic lot, you know. And so, you know, it, well, one can dispute whether that's accurate or not, but I think in their Marxist conception, that's it, right? If you have the means, if everyone's, you know, rich and prosperous as a job, a house and a car, then they won't want to rebel against the state, right? Uh, but if you're going to do that in Xinjiang, you're going to have to develop the region, and you're also going to have to develop the regions around it, because Xinjiang is, is a landlocked part of the world. You know, now it's part of China, so clearly it has access to China's waterways, but it's nowhere near China's waterways. If you're in Urumqi, you're in the middle of the Eurasian heartland. You know, you're really as far away, you're, you're five or six hour flight from Shanghai or Beijing. You know, you're two time zones away from Beijing itself even though actually China all is under one time zone, but really everything in Urumqi is two hours behind. Um, you, you know, you, you're quite a landlocked part of the world. So if you're going to open this region up, you're going to have to basically try to develop the region next to it. And that is really the kind of foundational idea of the book. This idea that China is trying to develop Xinjiang, it's part of Central Asia. But to do that, you need to connect that region to the world. And to connect that region to the world, you have to open up infrastructure routes and markets into Central Asia and beyond to the prosperous Euro European markets at the other end or, or Russia. And that ultimately will help kind of improve prosperity in Xinjiang and ultimately from Chinese government's perspective, help stabilize it. Okay, so I wanna I wanna get to the the, the very long answer. Yeah, no, 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 short no, no, question. That's, 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 that's fine. Like, I mean, this is what podcasts are for. Give as long an answer as you want, man. Um I think there's there's a Joe Rogan episode with Edward Snowden where I think Joe Rogan is like about three minutes of talking time and then it's just it's just Snowden like spitting things at him <laughs> for like three hours. So so this is fine, don't worry. Um, it sounds to me there like you're suggesting that the development of a lot of parts of Central Asia 
um, and that kind of Eurasian zone plateau with like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, etc. in it. It sounds like you're suggesting that the development of that area isn't as much about the Belt and Road Initiative and the New Silk Road and this sort of like flow from China through to, to Europe and Africa. It sounds like the development of Central Asia is less about that in, in your mind than it is about Xinjiang and, and creating a prosperous way for that region to grow and become more affluent. Is, is that what you're saying? So, I mean, I think I look at it a different way. I'd say, you know, this is the first place the Belt and Road started. This is where it started. This is where the idea was born. It's always important to remember, you know, when Xi Jinping went out in 2013 and gave the two big speeches, which became the foundational documents of the Belt and Road. In, in September uh, 2013, he went to Kazakhstan, what was then called Astana, but is now called Nur Sultan, um, and gave a speech at Nazarbayev University where he talked about the creation of a Silk Road economic belt. And then a month later, he went to Jakarta, and in the parliament there, he gave a speech where he talked about the creation of a 21st century maritime Silk Road. And these two speeches become the kind of foundational documents or foundational things, concepts of the Belt and Road Initiative, right? So the belt is, you know, the 21st century maritime Silk Road, and the, you know, belt, that becomes a belt thing, and, and the road, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the belt is the Silk Road economic belt, and 21st century maritime Silk Road becomes the road, and that's the belt and road. And so... These two are kind of the start of it. And I think there was a reason why he did the first speech in Kazakhstan, because I think what had been happening in Central Asia for, I would argue, a decade or more before was the model that they then said, you know, oh, this works here. And it seems to be doing something. And it's quite a positive way of articulating your foreign policy. Because essentially what you're saying is we're going to help you build infrastructure. We're going to help you fund that infrastructure. We're going to help open up markets, create development. We're going to build prosperity together. You know, we're all going to make money. You know, it's a pretty nice, good, tidy foreign policy vision to sell to the world, right? Um, and that, I think they could see this has been happening in Central Asia for a period of time, and it happened kind of because of natural forces very much driven by domestic concerns uh, that were kind of overspilling into the region next to it. And they said, well, hey, this is a model. Let's turn this model into our global vision. And it becomes Xi Jinping's foreign policy idea, his big idea that becomes the Belt and Road Initiative that then, you know, I mean, I remember when I, you know, I, was, I was living in China at the time and I traveling to it much after he gave those speeches, you know, and it, what was striking to me was every institution I would visit had a Belt and Road Center of some sort or another. Everyone had their Belt and Road thing because it was clearly the leader's foreign policy idea. But you know, the interesting thing from my perspective was it started in Central Asia and it was very much kind of putting a brand on something that had been happening in Central Asia for the decade or more before and then internationalizing that brand. Mm. So maybe it would be useful here just for people who maybe aren't com completely familiar with the, the Belt and Road Initiative or the, the Silk Road. Uh, just do you want to like lay out like what it is that that they're building and what it is that they're imitating from the past, like the, this this sort of notion from... Yeah, the the ancient world through to like the thing that they're trying to replicate in the in the modern yeah in the modern day. Do you want to yeah lay that out for people a little bit just to give a, a bit more context to what we're talking about? Sure. So I mean, of course, the ancient Silk Roads are you know these very mysterious routes you know trekking across Eurasia where you have you know these caravans of camels taking silks and spices and goods back and forth you know from the east over to the west. You know, this is famously the routes that Marco Polo trod, you know, back in uh, uh, his 
earlier years. I'm completely forgetting what years it was, but <laughs> a very long time ago. Um, you know, and th those kinds of roads, these are the ancient silk roads, these route, long transport routes that brought prosperity and brought ideas and goods across the kind of Eurasian landmass. And the Eurasian landmass, you know, is basically, you know, what the great British geographer Halfa McKinder describes as the world island, which is basically a piece of land that sort of encompasses Russia and then China down below and then over to sort of Western Europe. That land mass is all one contiguous mass and the Silk Roads essentially traverse that territory. Now, in more modern times, um, that terminology has kind of been adopted a number of times by various governments as they try to articulate kind of strategic visions for engagement across this territory. Um, and lots of people have tried, frankly. You know, back in the 1990s, actually, the Chinese and the Japanese had a different interpretation of the Silk Roads that they were pushing, which was one bringing Central Asian energy across China to Japan. In the 90s, of course, Japan was the big boom economy that everyone was sort of looking for, and they needed all these resources. Um, and then in the in the early 2010s, uh, in well, in the yeah, in the early 2010s, the Americans articulated the idea of a new Silk Road where they talked about building basically a north-south corridor across Afghanistan, connecting Central Asia to South Asia. And this was really about trying to help connect up Afghanistan, a country that, of course, the United States was involved in a war in at the time and was trying to stabilize and thought, well, economic prosperity might help that. And then lots of other you know, institutions who tried their own versions of this. You know, the, the Asian Development Bank, the IMF, others have all had various kind of Silk Road concepts. But I think the one that really sticks and I think has captured it at the moment is, um, is the Chinese vision, this Belt and Road Initiative that tries to rebuild what they call the New Silk Roads, which is essentially about you know, doing connectivity and, and prosperity. And what does it mean in sort of practical terms? Well, I think the shorthand is that it's really more of a, a concept and a vision rather than a specific project. And I think this is where people come a cropper because they think, oh, the Chinese are talking about this Belt and Road Initiative. It's a specific project you know, to do a series of things to then get to an end goal. It's not really. It's really about how China is articulating its policy of going out into the world at the moment and saying we're all about connectivity and prosperity. And that is the key thing underpinning Chinese foreign policy at the moment. And that is, you know, that is uh, this is the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm. OK, that's a great explanation. So. Would you say that the goal here of the Belt and Road Initiative is more driven by foreign or domestic policy because this this is one of the tensions that i'd sort of kept seeing popping up in the book where like one one thing would be sort of highlighted for a, or seem seem to be for like a specific domestic reason or something like local to that region and then it would turn out then you sort of look at the bigger picture and perhaps it's part of like a wider attempt of, by china to it doesn't it's not even like curry influence it's like prevent opposition to their like yeah other shall we say misgivings on the global stage <laughs> um it's like so what do you see driving this at the center do you or do you think it's just both at the same time well, i mean you know the way i'd say uh, i i think about that i'd say well what country does its foreign policy for entirely altruistic reasons <laughs> you know I, I, most countries, to be honest, are quite selfish in this way, and understandably so. You know what I mean? You spend taxpayers' money, you're doing things, uh, you know, with uh, in advance your national interest. You know, politicians voted in by their publics, or you know, they're ruling over their publics if they're in an authoritarian context. So, you know, they have to answer to their public, and that's the kind of priority. So, 
you know, I think from the Chinese perspective, the whole concept of the Belt and Road is about, you know, uh, about, as I say, engaging with the world and engaging with the world through this vision of connectivity and prosperity. But it has solipsistic interests within that. It's about Chinese companies going out into the world and getting some experience and getting opportunities in the world. You know, within China, there's a narrative that, you know, in the early years of the Belt and Road, one of the big pushes was construct construction. And this was in part because there'd been a real surfeit of construction at home in China. And so you had a lot of companies that were kind of starting to run out of stuff to do, and you need to keep them occupied. And these are big companies employing hundreds of people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, and the Chinese government needs to keep them moving. And so this is a way, you know, you extend a loan to country X to build a road and you put within that, you know, contract a stipulation that, you know, you will use one of our companies to do that. And so that helps kind of keep the company employed and keeps the money circulating and, you know, keeps it in. And I'd say this isn't unique to the Chinese. You know, the idea of linked loans is something that lots of other countries do as well. It's, you know, quite a frequent stipulation and it makes sense. You know, you're not just trying to give money away. You're trying to make sure that your system benefits, you know. Again, publics don't appreciate it if you're just kind of throwing your <laughs> nation's wealth to other poorer countries. You know, it's, it's something you think about, you know, in, in the UK, there's a big debate about, you know, raising or lowering the uh, percentage of um, GDP that's spent on aid. Uh, you know, it's, it's a controversial question. I can, I can well understand it. So I think that, you know, the whole point about this is really about, uh, it is about China kind of externalizing. I think the point about, uh, about Central Asia specifically is I think that for Central Asia is particularly important within this context. So when you think of an African context or you think about a European context, they're kind of far away, you know, and so there's distance. And so the kind of Belt and Road stuff there is important, but it's important in different ways in a way. Whereas in Central Asia, it's next door. And it's a part of the world that China is intimately attached to, both in terms of sharing direct borders, but also in terms of, you know, communities. So, you know, in the countries of Central Asia, you know, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan all share borders directly with China. There are Tajik communities in China. There are Kyrgyz communities in China. There's about a million Kazakhs in China. You know, and these are ethnically Kazakh people. And similarly, there are ethnically Chinese people living on the other side of the border. Now, some of them are quite recent migrants, but some of them go back. The point is China is very tied to this part of the world. And so the investments here, the kind of Belt and Road stuff here, has a different level of kind of importance in a way, because it is tied to kind of domestic stability specifically in trying to bring prosperity to Xinjiang, but also because it just is, this is not a part of the world where the borders are as clean as you see kind of drawn on the ground. I mean, they are, there is a specific border, it's police and it's guarded and so on and so forth, but the communities and the interlinkages are quite strong uh, back and forth and go back quite a long way. and means that, you know, it's a part of the world that China is really kind of intimately tied to. And so therefore it makes all of the projects and investments there important in kind of direct ways as well as being, you know, about doing projects next door. The final point I'd add on this, of course, is, you know, uh, the other aspect that's important in the Central Asian context is Central Asia is a very mineral rich area. And China is a country that consumes a lot of minerals. And so that's always an important sort of connection that's quite specific to this part of the world as well. How much, so in the book, you kind of talk about this waning Russian Soviet influence sort of since the, the fall of, yeah, obviously the fall of the Soviet Union in uh 91 91 i'm gonna say 91 it was yeah <laughs> the, dissolution was in 91 yeah and yeah the berlin wall came down 90 91 as well actually didn't it yeah yeah uh yes pretty sure because you you two were flying in to record actung baby just as the the wall came down they were the last flight into old east berlin 
that would have been a bit of a sting to be on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Quite a trip. Yeah. <laughs> so the um so this this waning of influence from from Russia has has obviously been accompanied by China attempting to to expand their sphere of influence in the region. How much do you think they've succeeded? Because I kind of got the feeling that there was there had been perhaps like early or early enthusiasm for for investment from China that had kind of waned as people had seen the ways in which the China the companies that had been expanding into into this region had sort of conducted business it, it wasn't they were there to do the job the workers were there to send the money home it was there wasn't like a, i don't know some sort of there wasn't like a bigger integration than perhaps there could have been so like how how, how much control do you think china has like soft power or geopolitically or economically even over this region I mean, look, I think China is the most consequential actor increasingly on the ground, you know. Um, I think that, you know, Russia will always, well, not always, I think, you know, eventually it might shift, but Russia has a very strong influence on the region. I don't think there's any getting away from that. I think, you know, uh, the institutions uh, that a lot of the region, regional countries are members of are Russian controlled. I mean, the Shanghai Corporation Organization is kind of the exception. And even in the Shanghai Corporation Organization, the Russians are members as well. And, you know, Russia is still the country that they turn to for, for example, security questions. So if I think of, you know, um, what we've seen happen over the past year, you know, the, the fall of Kabul uh, to the Taliban, uh, the chaos in, in Kazakhstan at the beginning of the year, uh, you know, these, uh, the kind of the person, the country that came uh, with military aid in both cases was Russia. You know, Russia rushed through a whole series of arms sales to the Central Asians as Kabul was falling. Um, Russia started a joint training exercise with the Uzbeks and the Tajiks, both of whom share borders with uh, with Russia. I'm sorry, with Afghanistan. Um, you know, they they were the ones who stepped in and did that. Um, you know, when Kazakhstan had its trouble at the beginning of the year, where you had some protests there that escalated into really widespread violence, which the government kind of lost control of. Uh, you know, the leader had to ask Russia to send some forces under the banner of something called the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is kind of another post-Soviet construction that brings together a number of the sort of former Soviet states in a kind of sort of NATO-ish alliance, but it's nowhere near as kind of developed as NATO. Um, you know, it, it was Russian forces that deployed. It wasn't Chinese ones. And so, you know, Russia still has a very important role to play in the region, and it continues to have a strong connection there. And of course, Russian is still a very widely spoken language uh, across the region. And you know, there's huge amounts of migrant laborers that go to Russia. And if you look at like a country like Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, depending on the calculations, like a third of their GDP is generated by remittances for migrant labor. So young men from young men and women from these countries going to work in Moscow and then sending money home. Um, you know, in Uzbekistan as well, it's a smaller proportion of GDP, but it's a huge amount of money. And, you know, you're talking about six million people who basically live and work in Russia sending money back. Uh, to the region. So Russia has a very strong connection there. I don't want to discount that. But I think if you look at China and the way China's influence has grown over the past few years, it is clearly the one that is coming with the new big development projects. It is the one that's offering new roads, new tunnels, new big loans extended by its policy banks, which then its companies come and develop, its come and companies come and build. Um, you know, it is, and that's been the story for you know the past. I'd argue 15, 20 years almost now, right? But it's a constant story of sort of constant upwards trajectory from a, a Chinese perspective. 
Now, you know, how's that received by the locals? Well, I always found at a governmental level, it was pretty well received, actually. <laughs> you know, these are countries that need investment, frankly. They, they have infrastructure problems. They have, you know, things they want to build, things they want to do. And there aren't that many lenders out there. I mean, there's, you know, some European ones and some American ones. And that's, you know, something that they, they do tap regularly. But, you know, uh, China, the, the kind of level of investment that China offers sometimes and the level of kind of opportunities it offers is different in some ways and is more substantial and comes often with less strings attached, which they like. So, you know, at a governmental level, I always found positive perspectives of let's try to get China in and try to get Chinese investment. Where you find negative things is at a grassroots level, where you'd find often where the project had been implemented, you know, there were problems. Like, you know, I remember stories in Kyrgyzstan of infrastructure, of, you know, energy projects or, 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 or refineries that were being built, which had kind of polluted local waterways, you know, and really done a lot of damage. And the locals, you know, were suffering as a result of that. Or in other cases where you'd see regular stories of spats between locals and Chinese workers who were working on similar companies together because, you know, they were, um, uh, they were, uh, they were unhappy with the treatment by the Chinese company, uh, you know, and that, that was kind of a, a problem that they were encountering. Um, you know, and in other cases, you'd find people complaining that they weren't getting jobs or the benefits they're expecting from the Chinese companies. And in, I remember in one particularly catastrophic incident, there was a big uh, uh, power station in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan that was refurbished by a, a Chinese firm. And then in the middle of winter, it conked out. You know, now this is the, the Eurasian step. You know, this is not a warm place in winter. You know, this is what cold, this is, this climate is what cold weather clothing was designed for. You know, so, you know, to have a, a, an energy station conk out in the middle of winter, not a good look. And then when they looked into it, they discovered there'd been massive corruption around the project and huge amount of wastage and, and so on. So there have been some pretty big problems there. But, and so that, that does, of course, translate into sort of unhappiness on the ground. But the, the, the other side to that I'd offer is that there have also been some really game-changing projects. Some of the infrastructure that's been built has really transformed uh, connectivity and transformed the lives of people in these countries. You know, in in, in parts of uh, uh, in Tajikistan, for example, some of the agriculture projects that have been done have basically rehabilitated land that was no longer arable. That now means you get all round, you know, vegetables in the markets there, whereas previously you didn't in some parts of the year. You know, there's tunnels that they built in in Uzbekistan or in Tajikistan that have connected parts of the country that are going to save, you know in the longer term, millions of man hours in terms of journeys, you know, so there are some real benefits that come from the infrastructure there, but there are also problems. And unfortunately, for a lot of locals, it's the problems that you see, you know, that end up ultimately being the ones that bother. So I always found this kind of dual perspective, where at a governmental level, there's sort of leadership elite level, they're broadly quite positive. But when you got out to the grassroots level, you did find pockets of complaints, but you also found pockets of people who found real opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's probably always the case with these things that, you know, it's not one good or bad thing. Like, there'll be some people who have managed to benefit from it. There'll be, yeah, there'll always be winners and losers, basically, I think is what I'm saying. So, yeah. you know what's really interesting? When I was reading the book, um, I find, I say reading, I still am reading. Um, I find that I was, I was reading about Central Asia in a way that I had never heard anyone speak about this region. And I'm not quite sure why that is. Maybe that's like my own limited, like, I don't know, geopolitical education or something. But, you know, I've heard people talk about, say, 
Afghanistan or Syria or Turkey in conjunction with each other. And and I was just I, I was looking I was looking at the map there whilst you were talking earlier, and I, I'm I'm going to get it up actually here for people while I talk about this. So it's it's stunning how close that this region is to Europe, right? Mm. And the fact that we we no one ever mentions about they just they don't talk about like Afghanistan, Iran, that. Yeah, those combination of countries and then, yeah, obviously Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, all the places that you, you sort of focus on a little closer in the book. No one ever talks about it in because it is it's like a gateway between the two of them and to Africa. And obviously, like, as you've mentioned, like that's part of why um, it was a big trade route in the past and why China are trying to make it a thing again. Why doesn't anyone talk about it like this? <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I wish I knew, to be honest. I mean, I'm glad that you say no one else does, because then I got there first, right? So hooray. Um, you know, that's uh, always a good thing, right? <laughs> but uh, I, I, I honestly don't know. I, I Look, I'm, you know, I said at the outset, I, I'm fascinated by this part of the world, and I love it, and I travel there whenever I can. Unfortunately, of course, the past two years have made that impossible because uh, of this damn virus. But, you know, uh, it's 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 a really incredible part. It's a real credit to civilization. You know, you go there, and you can go to these beautiful old sites you know you go see the registan in 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 uzbekistan and it's a spectacular you know set of buildings that have been rehabilitated but rehabilitated really nicely you know or you go see ancient merv in or in marie in in, Tash, in in turkmenistan you know down near afghanistan or you even go to kabul you know and you see the old palace there you know i mean these are extraordinary sites and beautiful places and this is a real cradle of civilization really it is you know and I, I can never really, I can't understand why people, why more people don't visit, frankly, because I find it a really fascinating place. And frankly, one of the you know, reasons uh, for indulging in this research was, you know, partially because I was really interested in understanding this kind of Chinese growth that was happening there, but it's also just to try to appreciate the region, you know, which has this extraordinary natural beauty as well as historical beauty. And, you know, I, I suspect that it tends to fall between the cracks because, you know, if you ask most people, you know, I think, uh, uh, probably showing my age a bit here now, but you know, where, what do they think of Central Asia? They probably think of Borat, right, in Kazakhstan. And I think you know the reason that Sasha Baron Cohen chose Kazakhstan, I think, was because no one really heard of it. You know what I mean? And it was just kind of this place that you know exists. We know it's there somewhere, but no one's ever heard of it. And so you can kind of ridicule it in this way because, frankly, no one's got any experience of being there. But and but yet it is. It is a really kind of interesting part of the world, and also I think strategically significant. And I think that's the other side of it, which I think is is missed. And you know, if we go back and look at history, there's, you know, Mackinder and others who had this whole concept of uh, what they called the world island, what he called the world island and the sort of pivot of history. And his narrative was whoever controls this territory controls the world island and therefore controls the world. Um, and, you know, it's the, I think there's something to that in a way. You know, it is a very significant kind of geopolitical part of the world. But then it's also got very real, immediate and very current strategic interests, I think, in the West in particular as well. Afghanistan is next door. And, you know, for a long time, the United States was using bases in the region to operate in Afghanistan. And when the, the Republic government fell, Europe was using a lot of Central Asia as its exit route. You know, so they were the Germans and the French and the Brits evacuated a lot of people through Central Asia uh, back to Europe. Um, so it's always kind of it's important. And even nowadays, when we think about the big great power conflict that we're locked in right against China and Russia, well, they abut this region, you know, <laughs> they're top and bottom uh, around it. And they've got an interesting set of insights and connections to it that I think 
is a kind of missed strategic opportunity. So I, I don't know why more people don't sort of um, cover it and are interested in it, but my suspicion is I think that uh, it's a bit, it's just kind of remote and people haven't sort of conceptualized it. But then also I think it's, there's a, there's an element of, um, uh, you know, the Russian and Chinese influence is quite strong. And so there's a sense that, well, that's just kind of that part of the world. Yeah. And I think this belies our habit of thinking of the world in kind of blocks and a kind of Western block and an Eastern block or an axis and whatever. And I think we tend to kind of group them in that block. And I think that's wrong because actually it's not a region that's not, that necessarily immediately goes in that direction. I guess it hasn't yet been colonized by British holidaymakers. And therefore, <laughs> like, no, like no. it would be one of the well, few places I would go in the world and I would be concerned that there wouldn't be an Irish pub. <laughs> oh, actually, you would be surprised. You would be very surprised. I, the, the Irish pub is a great export, frankly, and I've seen it in lots of places. And, uh, you know, it's funny you should mention that on the travel side, because um, on the tourist side, because in uh, in Turkmenistan, in Ashgabat, one of the funniest occurrences I had traveling there, I had many, actually, it's a very, it's a very curious place, was we had... Um, the uh, Turkmen Airlines runs a route from Birmingham through Ashgabat to Amritsar. Right. And in Birmingham, is, um, I'm sure you know, there's a very big Indian community and they all want to go to Amritsar. And so there's a huge amount of people who use that route. And so there was times when I find myself, you know, late at night in Ashgabat Airport waiting for a connection. And suddenly this huge crowd of, you know, Indian Brahmis would show up you know, waiting for their connection through uh, to go to Amritsar. Uh, so, you know, there, there are some British holiday makers there. <laughs> hey, maybe I'm underestimating. Like, what drew you to the area in the first place? Like, where did you first go? You Like, I, I'm assuming that the, when you, you were thinking about doing some research, you weren't just on holiday. And after like the fifth trip no. there, you couldn't keep brushing it off as research trips. <laughs> what I, you I, to be honest, I think the first... Uh, uh, the research for this, I think the first one, I think, gosh, was it Xinjiang or was it Kyrgyzstan? I think I'm going to have in Kyrgyzstan, you know. I think Kyrgyzstan was the first place to visit, uh, in Bishkek, uh, because it's, it is the most accessible and there's a lot happening there. Lots of international NGOs, NGOs, think tankers, researchers, journalists are based there because it's, you know, it's a country which has issues and, you know, some political issues too, but it's relatively open um, and it's got a government that, you know, has elections every four years. Those elections, unfortunately, are usually marred by violence, but they do have elections. Um, you know, so there is that kind of concern. It's quite an open place. So that was the first time I think I visited. And then, you know, but but in, in China, it was really about Xinjiang. And Xinjiang was where I went a lot in the first instance. How, how much would you say Xinjiang has changed in the time since you started writing the book? Is it is it basically unrecognizable in some places? Because that's the impression I've got, like, uh, from, yeah, from just a few like anecdotal people that I've spoken to from the area um, and yeah, from the book, I got, got the impression that there was some places that were really resisting the development in a way. And a lot of places that were just, yeah, getting bulldozed over before they could say no. So, I mean, I think it has changed a lot. The most visible change I always noticed was the security, frankly. So the first times I visited, you know, uh, it was after the riots in 2009, so security was an issue and everyone's talking about it, but I mean, it was fairly lax. You know what I mean? It was like you would go to places, there was airport, you know, there's little airport barriers everywhere. But, you know, most of the time, the guy who was checking it was clearly playing with his phone, you know, if the machine was even working. You know, it was not, it was not a very serious kind of, you know, uh, it didn't feel very serious and, you know, it was all very lax. And I remember in that journey, on the first journey around Xinjiang, we went, 
to visit a lot of places and in a lot of places I, you know we had a kind of driver who drove because you know you gotta remember this is a huge territory <laughs> so to get around you really need to hire a driver who can take you place and knows where to go because obviously you're going to get completely lost um but you know the driver would take us to these natural park reserves where you had like a gate at the entry and say oh there's no need to go there let's go to this place i know there's a hole in the gate so we go all the way around the fence get in there and he let us in for free and we just totter around and no one really cared yeah so that was the first trip. but then as i went back each time after that the security got more visible and much tighter and so you know by the last visits in you know like i remember the 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 point at which you get really strip searched not strip searched not you get really patted down at the airport you know was starting to happen when i was leaving shanghai so i remember in 2013 2012 13 when i went out there you know there was a secure a heavy security check in shanghai before i even got into the plane in shanghai and then when i got to Urumqi, there was even more security checks before i got at the airport so it got tighter and tighter and tighter each time and the security layers got further and further back and when you went around Urumqi, you'd find that mosques had you know large what looked like those you know those bike cages you see sometimes on the roads that you know you have bikes underneath them yeah. well you'd have those outside the mosques and underneath those those armed guards you know machine guns you know, and there was like armed personnel carriers on street corners. And this is in the capital of Rumchi, wow. which is mostly a Han city, frankly. You know, so it's not even a majority Uyghur city. It's a mostly Han city. And, you know, as you get outside, you'd find security blocks everywhere, people checking on where you're going, what you're doing, asking all sorts of questions, you know. Um, and, you know, I the last visit I did was, I think, 2016 or 17. I can't quite remember now. And it was really a, a very short trip through Rumchi. So that's all I saw. But other friends who got out, told me about the high levels of security that you'd find outside. You know, there was even a point at which, you know, they were checking how much petrol people were buying and measuring that against consumption. And, you know, because people were building bombs out of, you know, fuel. And so they were saying, well, you know, we tried. So it was all sorts of things like that. And the, at one point they started branding knives with QR codes, which are linked to your ID card. Because yeah, people were using knives. In that. I was horrified at that. I was like, oh, uh, your goodness. Or even a crazier one was in the South. I remember at one point, they, there was a couple of instances where people made explosives out of uh, matches. Yeah. They were like yeah. taking match heads. And so they banned matches from, you know, part of the country. Yeah, and, you, was... you know, try to impose that is extraordinary. So those kinds of things were starting to happen more and more. And then, you know, the stories around internet controls are getting tighter and tighter. And, you know, people started to have things put on their so, there was, you know, I noted, as I say, my tracking of this personally stopped in 2016, 17, but from other people who were going there would tell me these stories and I would hear them, you know, firsthand about how tight it was going. So it, it really did, I think, transform as time went on. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's a very, very tight thing. But look, I mean, in, uh, in my early years of going there, it was certainly, you go out to some of the villages outside, you know, Kashgar, up near the borders with Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. I mean, they were pretty rudimentary villages still you know <laughs> uh there was still they the you know the modern china hadn't reached there you know and it was quite different to downtown Urumqi, which basically looks like just another chinese city these days um but you know you get out to some of these villages in the tajik regions and it was you know it felt like you're in a different world does it feel safer calmer like did, did, like in that time when you were watching the security sort of build up did it feel like that was having an effect? Was was there like less crime? Was there more tension because of the increased security presence? And did you find people were less, I don't know, happy to talk to you as the time went on? Um, I mean, I think that uh, there certainly was a change in um, 
in mood, you know. I mean, to be honest, the the, the issue around uh, uh, the kind of uh, the tension which lies at the heart of all of the issues is the tension between the Uyghur minority, increasing Uyghur minority, increasingly minority Uyghur community, and the growing Han uh, majority. And that's kind of the core tension that you have. And that is something I felt ever since I first went there. You know, like the Uyghurs I would talk to were, they hated Han some of them. I mean, some of them were fine and were happy and just like living in China and were just comfortable and whatever. But there was a lot of young people who really resented it and they hated, you know, that they were kind of trapped and they felt their own country and they weren't allowed to express them and so on and so forth. So that was a tension that was always there. Um, and I, I think it, you know, the more depressing expressions of it is when I'd meet you know, Han, who were really scared of Uyghurs, you know, would tell me these horror stories about them. And I was like, really, is that true? You know, and they were like, oh, yes, yes, I've heard myself that it's real. And I went, okay. You know, and then when you'd ask them, you know, they'd take you around to see sites of, uh, of Xinjiang and they say, oh, we'll show you some local places. And the local places were kind of, you know, uh, Uyghur areas that had kind of been rebuilt rather than, you know, preserved. And uh, that was always a shame in a way because you felt that was part of the heritage that was, you know, ebbing away and that, that was sad so you know in terms of the question about did, did i find people more reticent to talk um yeah you know people did you know people worried about you know expressing themselves i mean over time i developed relationships with individuals who would kind of talk to me and would remain relatively open but you know getting people to talk candidly about terrorism policy was never easy frankly <laughs> even from the beginning yeah. uh and it, it did only get harder as time went along frankly yeah i can imagine it's yeah especially yeah well yeah in a place where there is such strict controls on a lot of things if you're even mentioning the word terrorism you're probably on a list somewhere <laughs> i mean with the mm -hmm. yeah the listening capabilities facial recognition it's a little scary what government could do when they get uh, no one holding them back <laughs> so when they really put their minds up yeah when they really do um, so the last thing I want to ask you about basically is how you see things developing in, in this region. Um, do you see China being able to continue to or continuing to bankroll like a lot of in infrastructure pro ah, projects around this region? Uh, is, it, is it somewhere that is going to become increasingly significant in, in global sort of trade and, and geopolitics, do you think? Or you know, should we all just be watching Taiwan? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I think, you know, uh, the debate of China and the seas and Taiwan and, you know, the various islands and the dispute with lots of others in South China Sea is, is very significant, you know, and I, I don't want to underplay the degree to which that, that could turn into a conflict or even if you're China's borders with India, where there have been conflicts and, you know, lives have been lost relatively recently. Um, you know, those are very tense uh, situations. But I think what's fascinating to me about Central Asia in particular is that you have a part of the world where uh, there are problems on the ground. You know, there are border spats, for example, quite regularly between the Kyrgyz and the Tajiks. There are borders that they haven't really defined yet between themselves. And as a result, you get these kind of border disputes that escalate to violence and shelling back and forth across the border and people dying and, you know, incidents of violence. You've had terrorist incidents in this part of the world. You know, the Chinese embassy in Bishkek was attacked with a car bomb in 2016. Um, you know, in Tajikistan, there were Western tourists who were murdered in a very horrible ISIS-inspired attack in, uh, I think it was 2018 or 19. Um, you know, 
there, there are problems there, real problems, you know, and you've got in Kazakhstan, as we saw at the beginning of the year, there was a very shocking and surprising sudden level of quite substantial instability. And of course, Afghanistan, you know, which has been a country which has now been taken over by the Taliban, but we're already seeing problems from uh, Taliban ruled Afghanistan go into uh, in Pakistan for certain, mm-hmm. uh, but also north into um, into Central Asia. There was an incident with the Islamic State group in in in, in Afghanistan claiming to launch some rockets into Uzbekistan uh, just a couple of days ago or yesterday. Um, you know, so as a region's got lots of problems, <laughs> lots of really difficult security problems, uh, tensions between communities, um, borders that are still a bit kind of ropey. You know, and and when I'm talking about a region, I really would stretch it down into Pakistan actually as well. Um, and it's a region where China is becoming the kind of most consequential actor on the ground. And yet China isn't trying to address any of these issues. You know, the only way China worries about any of these issues is when it impacts China's interests. And China's interests are quite narrow. It's about domestic security, or it's about Uyghurs, or it's about its interests getting directly struck. It doesn't really care if there's a Taliban government in Afghanistan or a, a republic government in Afghanistan. They were working quite comfortably with both, frankly. Uh, they're working very closely with the Republic government. They were the biggest investors in Afghanistan when the US uh, was supposedly in control. You know, they were the ones who were offering the big infrastructure projects and investment projects there, which actually never took off. But you know, in, on paper, were the biggest ones uh, uh, being uh, attempted. And you know, that government falls. The Chinese flip perfectly over to start working with the Taliban government instead. And in fact, rolling over the same projects and now talking about doing them with the Taliban government in charge. So they're not interested in trying to resolve the problems on the ground. If the Taliban want to let girls go to school, great. If they don't, don't care. You know, if the Taliban have an inclusive government, good. If they don't, don't care. We'll just deal with whoever's in charge. And this is kind of the issue is that, you know, you've got this power, which is becoming the most consequential player on the ground, you know, in economic terms, in strategic terms, because, you know, uh, I think we're going to see a waning of Russian power, frankly, in the wake of what's happened in Ukraine. And that will mean Russia will be a different player and will be more dependent on uh, powers like China or other relations. And will have to, to some degree, you know, work a new way for itself in the world. And, you know, China's going to be the big, the big dog and the big player <laughs> in this neighborhood. And yeah, it's not a power that's interested in trying to, to fix problems. It's, uh, you know, their approach to things as well, you know, Countries should have their own history and let it play out and see what happens. And we'll just work with whoever's in charge. You guys tell us who you are putting in charge and we'll work with them. You know, and they don't really mind about, you know, human rights questions or, you know, or civil society questions. They matter when they impact what the Chinese are trying to achieve. You know, so for example, there are, were some really interesting examples in, in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan where I found that, you know, the Chinese companies had had so many issues. <laughs> you know, on the ground in doing a project, that what the Chinese company had done was essentially done a whole bunch of corporate social responsibility projects, you know, building schools, giving out stuff to the locals to kind of make them happy so that they would let them get along, get on with the project that they were trying to do. Um, But it was done for that very kind of narrow, interested perspective. Now, you know, maybe, maybe this is an approach to the world. Maybe the Western approach of trying to fix the world or do things uh, change places is incorrect and misguided and has only led to misery and failure. But, you know, um, I worry that the consequences of just letting things play out is, you know, chaos and instability. As I say, in Afghanistan, you know, the Taliban taking over is not, you know, it's it led to it's led to a drop in violence at the moment. But I worry already about how instability is starting to show up in neighboring countries from Afghanistan, and that's only going to get worse, I think, as time goes on. And who's going to come and do deal with that? You know, 
I don't think the West is. I think the West is going to only come and look if suddenly Al-Qaeda starts to rebuild bases or terrorist groups that want to strike the West start to reappear. You might see some drone strikes. You might see some special forces. But they're certainly not going to go in heavy again in the way that they did after 9-11. So who is? Russia is not. They've already tried that. It didn't work out. (laughs) You know, you're going to end up with a potentially very chaotic situation where China is the kind of big superpower that sits next door. And yet it's not interesting. That is kind of the subtitle of the book. It's this whole idea of an inadvertent empire where China is becoming the most consequential player. But it's happening in a way that China doesn't seem uh, to care about or have a complete strategic direction for, except in so much as it affects its direct interests. And so I think that's the interesting thing to watch going forward. You've got this part of the Eurasian heartland where China is becoming the big player. And yet is not interested in some ways in the same way that, you know, Western powers are interested in trying to change and fix things. Yeah. And I mean, that's in a very traditionally stable and peaceful region of the world. <laughs> so things, right, are exactly. get, things are going to get worse. I mean, that's not exactly a good, yeah, good sign. Um, yeah. But I guess we'll see how, how everything plays out. So yeah, everybody, uh, check out the book, Sinostan. Hang on, let's get it in camera. There we are, Sinostan, uh, China's Inverted Empire brilliantly written um and i i was trying to sell it as a good read to my housemate the other day and uh she was just like whatever way i was explaining it she was i was she was like that sounds awful and i was like no it's actually really interesting <laughs> uh, she was like okay josh it's like yeah it's about trade and economic development in central asia it's, uh, yeah <laughs> but it is it's really good so everyone check it out um thank you thank yeah, you man. very much thanks for your That's time very kind to hear thank you thanks for the invitation Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.